How many of you like sports? I'm telling you, it's March Madness. And uh, some of us enjoy that. Some of us are waiting till the TV gets turned off. But if you've noticed, even if you're not a sports fan, I bet you've noticed if you've gone to a baseball game or a football game or a basketball game, some large soccer event, something like that, you've probably seen that especially as it gets down to playoff time, crunch time, there will be signs that will say words like this, believe, just one word, believe. And then there'll be other ones that will say, you got to believe. And this whole idea of believe really stirred up during sporting events. And I don't know about you, but I found myself with the word believe getting used so much nowadays, you know, you find yourself saying, believe in what? What do you mean by believe? What's, what's there? There's something in people's minds that's powerful about believing. But you know, that's not just true in sporting events. Did you know it's true in the Bible? In fact, if you're following along in the notes there this morning, I want you to see that the Gospel of John, which we're studying right now together as a church family, in the Gospel of John, John uses the verb believe, the word believe, nearly a hundred times in his Gospel alone. You think the word believe is important to him? In the Greek, this word is pistuo, and uh, the idea of believe can mean to trust. It's got the same root form that we come up with the word faith. And so what does it mean to believe? Did you know that John tells us at the end of his gospel the whole reason why he wrote this record, this account of Jesus? John 20, verse 31. Here's what it says. Now, the verse before it says this. Jesus did many other miraculous things that are not recorded in this book. And then he says this. But these are written that you, the one who's reading it, you and me, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John's gospel is definitely about the word believe. Again, the second thing I want you to see, though, is that not all belief, if you're following along, not all belief is the living, saving belief Jesus seeks. Not all belief. Not all belief at sporting events, not all belief, sometimes even that's mentioned in churches is the kind of living, saving faith or belief that Jesus seeks. Now, I want to ask you to open up your Bibles this morning to John 4. We're going to actually study an account in John 4, verses 43 through 54. We're going to pick up where Steve left off last week and the study of the woman at the well in Samaria. But we're going to look at verse 4, uh, 43 of chapter 4, and I want you to mark that place with your finger because then I want you to turn back a page or two, okay? Once you're doing that, and by the way, I'm told that if you didn't bring a Bible, we have red Bibles in the seat rack, but because we now have about three different kinds of red Bibles circulating, if you get somewhere between seven and 800, you'll be in the neighborhood of John, and then just find chapter four, okay? Now, once you find that, here's what I want you to see. Turn back to the last three verses of chapter two in John's gospel. We looked at this when we saw Jesus cleansing the temple. And I want to read these words to you. It says, Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs Jesus was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. 
He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. This seems to imply that although they believed when they saw the miraculous signs, Jesus didn't believe in their belief. There was something fair weather about it. There was something of, oh, I love miracles. Way to go. I'm going to believe in you for a while. And Jesus just went, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not the kind of believing I'm seeking. And so as we think about this this morning, I want you to read with me out loud the last verse of our uh, passage. It's listed there in the gray box there on the notes. Would you read it with me, please? This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. Wait a minute. Second one, we just read in John chapter 2 that he did many miraculous signs in Jerusalem. Many means more than two. And we already saw in the earlier part of chapter 2 that Jesus turned water into wine in Cana. So this is not saying, it's not contradicting ourselves. we need to pay attention to the last few words of this sentence, which say this, that Jesus performed having come from Judea to Galilee. Now we're going to see he's back in the same town, in this account we're going to look at today, he's back in the same town he was when he did that miracle at the wedding. In between there, there were lots of miraculous things that happened. But this is now the second miraculous sign he's done in this area from Judea to Galilee that Jesus has done. He wants us to see that. What I want us to see today is that whatever kind of belief you walk into this room with this morning, Jesus wants to develop and make it deeper. Whatever you are, wherever you are at on the spiritual map, you may have believed in Jesus your whole life that you can remember ever since you were young. You may never have believed in Jesus. You may be at a place where you don't even think it's an intellectually reasonable thing to do. My prayer is that God will take this passage of Scripture today and he will help you understand that believing in Jesus as the Son of God, that by believing in him, you can have life in his name and life in a fullness you never imagined, and also you can believe him and know him even more deeply. I just want to tell you real quick, I've believed in Jesus 35 years, and I feel like I'm just at the front end of it. I feel like I have so much to learn. I'm a first grader with Jesus, but I'll tell you this, it has changed everything in my life. And I know this, that although I have a lot more to learn about believing, it's going to be worth it. I want to tell you, too, that I know that when we pastors uh, sensed that we were supposed to teach through John's gospel for 40 weeks in 2012, that we might have thought we knew why we were supposed to do that. But now, the deeper we get into John's gospel, I think that Jesus may have us in this gospel because he wants to help all of us believe in him more deeply. And I'm praying that's going to happen. And so today, what I want you to see in this passage is that like a coach, Jesus develops and deepens this man's belief. Like a coach... Jesus develops and deepens this man's belief. Look at this verse, if you would, from Hebrews 12, 2. When I was younger, I had a youth leader point this out to me. I love this verse. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is not only the one that helps write faith and belief into our lives and start it, but he's also the one that will perfect it that he will develop it, that he will deepen it. He will bring us to the place where we are even more and more grounded in this relationship with Jesus. 
And because of that, he, we were going to get a chance in this passage of Scripture today to see this picture of how he actually unfolds a deeper believing in this man's life and how it can happen in your life and mine. But let me stop by just telling you a little story about this idea of coaching and that kind of idea. When I was in seventh grade, all my friends told me that there was an English teacher I definitely did not want to have. So I, like, I just hoped that I would not get this. They told me that she was hard, that she was mean, and that she was unpleasant. Outside of that, I was excited if I got her for a teacher. So guess who I got for a teacher? Miss Ballant. Oh, no! I was so afraid of getting Miss Ballant. So I got Miss Ballant, and, and true to her word, first five minutes of class, I can still picture her walking up and down the aisles, passing out the syllabus, all business. And as she's doing that, she's talking, she's going, this next 12 weeks is going to be difficult. This next 12 weeks, I'm going to demand your best. This next 12 weeks, you are not only going to learn a lot about English, you're going to learn a lot about yourself. And she went on and on, and I'm going, no! <laughs> Six weeks into that class, I had completely changed my mind. Miss Ballant was bringing stuff out of me that was way past English. She was helping me see things that I didn't even know about myself, and her challenges were actually blessing me in a way that my self-respect even had gone up. And I want to tell you that because in a similar way, some of us have a picture of Jesus that he's going to be easy, that he's going to always just say calming, comforting words to us, and that he does sometimes, but he is also like a coach who will challenge us and develop us and deepen us. And because of, he loves us too much to let us stay where we are. And uh, years ago, I read about Tom Landry. Some of you know he was the legendary coach for the Dallas Cowboys. Phenomenal Christian man. But look what he says. Ray Steadman quotes him. My job as a coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to achieve what they really want to achieve. Every football player wants to win the championship and earn his Super Bowl ring. But to get to the Super Bowl, a player has to do a lot of things he doesn't want to do. Grueling, exhausting, boring, repetitive training. He has to absorb a lot of pain before he achieves the game. And the job of a coach is to encourage his players, often at the top of his lungs, to keep on doing what they don't want to do so that they can win games and achieve goals. In the second half of John 4, we will see that Jesus was that kind of encourager as well. He was sometimes blunt, sometimes confrontational, but only because he loved people enough to give them what they truly needed in order to have saving faith. Jesus, as we're about to see, was not only the object of faith, but the encourager of faith as well. So as we get ready to read this passage, as we continue this series called Encountering Christ in the Gospel of John, will you pray with me that God may use this time to deepen and develop our trust, our belief in him? Oh God. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in your word, and I believe in your authority, Jesus. And I pray that now you will take this simple unfolding of the gospel, and you will not only feed us and feed our faith, feed our belief in you, but that we will actually come to know you and encounter you. Oh, Lord, let it be so. And let what happens next be beyond what we could imagine or ask. For Jesus' sake, amen. So now, 
uh, I want to uh, ask you, if you would, I'm going to walk through uh, the first few verses and make some comments, okay? So if you are at John 4, 43, I know I had you look at John 2. Are we all back to John 4 now? Okay, here we go. After the two days, he, Jesus, left for Galilee. What are the two days? Some of you were here last week and got a chance to hear Steve's message, which if you haven't heard it, I highly recommend you take the time to do it, listening online or grab a CD today. But he talked about how Jesus stayed two days in Samaria. And those two days, an entire village of people, their lives were transformed because Jesus met a woman at the well and she invited that whole village to come out. And they knew that she was such, such a messed up person that when Jesus changed her life, they were willing to listen to her testimony. But after they came out to hear Jesus, they said, we no longer believe. Because of what you said about Jesus, now we've met him for ourselves, and we believe ourselves. It is an incredible testimony. So the disciples and Jesus are coming off a spiritual high. They just saw God do some incredible things in the hearts of people for those two days. Verse 44, now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now, again, I don't know how much Bible background you have, but some of you have probably heard that he is sometimes called the Galilean. And so he grew up in Galilee. So his own country is Galilee. Notice what happens in verse 45. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Pause. I thought Jesus had just said that no prophet is honored in his own country. So like, what gives? He's back in his own country, and they welcome him. Isn't that different than what Jesus said? But Jesus, again, knows the hearts of where people really are, and they realize that he realized the reason they were welcoming back is because what he had just done with all his miracles down in Jerusalem made him a rock star. So they were more than glad to have that hometown boy come home because they could all say, he belongs to us. He's, he's riding the popularity wave right now. We'll ride it with him. So they welcomed him, okay? Sometimes a welcome is not necessarily belief. Notice this. It says, they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they had also been there. Verse 46, once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he turned the water into wine, and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. Now I want to just stop and tell you that in that, those verses that we just read, there was a truckload of towns and places named that we don't recognize because we don't live there. So I thought it might help if you just saw a map, so I put it on the back of the notes, and I want you just to see, please know, these are historical places. These places actually exist. I have a friend that just got back from Jerusalem. These are real live places in the Middle East. But this shows us where, I want you to appreciate where Jesus was when these things happened. Way back in John chapter 2, Jesus did this miracle at the wedding of turning water into wine. Does anybody remember where that was? It was in Cana, okay? So if you look at the top of the map, you'll see in capital letters, Galilee, and then you'll see the town or the village of Cana. Everybody see that? And notice that it's along the Mediterranean Sea. So even if you don't believe the Bible yet, please know, this is a real live place. People have gone to the Mediterranean Sea. They know that's real. This is where this took place, okay? Then Cana, what we learn as we follow chapter 2 is that after doing that miracle, after a while, he goes down to Jerusalem at the Passover feast. 
Okay, so at the end of chapter 2, we see him cleansing the temple. Does everybody see Jerusalem in capital and in bold letters there near the bottom? And below that, you'll see in capital letters, Judea. So that's a region. So Jerusalem's in Judea, Cana's in Galilee, okay? Now, in chapter 3, while Jesus is still in Jerusalem, by night, a religious leader named Nicodemus comes to talk to him. So there he is, still in Jerusalem, and they have this incredible conversation. You must be born again. Then at the end of chapter 3, we find that Jesus is now with his disciples baptizing out by the Jordan River like John the Baptist. Do you see the Jordan River out to the right of Jerusalem there? So this is the area he was for a while. Again, after he gets done with that, he heads north. And when he heads north, the Bible says we saw last week in chapter 4, he had to go through Samaria. The steep pointed this out, but most Jewish people would have said, I beg to differ. And they would have gone around and literally crossed the Jordan River and gone many, many miles out of their way to avoid the Samaritans, who they thought were the scum of the earth. They called them dogs. But Jesus had to go through Samaria because he had an appointment with a woman who was lost as a goose. But Jesus cared about, met her at the well, helped her work through her life and realized that her life could be changed if she would trust him. And she did. And when she did that, it ended up being a whole village of people that took her testimony. That was all in Sychar of Samaria. Do you see that above Jerusalem there? Sychar, and then you see Samaria in capital letters. Now, after that, what we learn is that after those two days, now we're back in Cana in Galilee where Jesus had done his first miracle. So this is now the second miraculous sign that follows the first miraculous sign where? In Galilee, in Cana. So I wanted just to get some idea, but here's the last part I want to mention while you're looking at your map. The person we're going to study today is a royal official from a town called Capernaum. Do you see Capernaum? It's at the top of what's called the Sea of Galilee which some people, if you've ever visited, would tell you it's not a sea, it's a freshwater lake. Because you can see from shore to shore, it's that tiny. But that's where a lot of things happen. That's where Jesus walked on the water. That's an incredible place. This guy is from the north part of that shore, Capernaum, and it's 700 feet below sea level, so to get, you would go down to Capernaum to get there. So all that to tell you this. You can now turn your notes back over. What I want you to see is that this royal official, imagine the word that's used for this royal official is called basilikos. It means king's man. It means that he had some kind of royal responsibility. Most people sense that he probably worked for Herod, King Herod in that day. So he was probably used to having a lot of authority. He was used to having a lot of, you know, Power, a lot probably of privileges, a lot of possessions. This guy was used to having everything go his way. And if you're following along in the notes, notice this. Crisis faith or crisis belief brings him to beg Jesus to come heal his son. Crisis faith brings him to Jesus. Crisis brings him to Jesus. And it's a crisis faith that he starts with when he first comes to Jesus to ask him to come heal his son. Imagine this, Capernaum from Cana is about 20 miles. Not 20 miles like flat like in Springfield, 20 miles of some difficult terrain. It would have taken at least two hours by horse and probably six hours walking. 
but he came running to Jesus because he had a problem. He had a crisis. His heart was breaking. And some of you know what was in his heart because you've gone through it too. Have you ever noticed that sometimes the way people start with Jesus is because of a crisis in their life? I've watched over the years people that had a loved one that was in trouble in some way, physically or emotionally, that all of a sudden that caused them to look in different directions than they never looked before. And I've watched sometimes crisis open a person's heart to Jesus Christ. Sometimes people have had economic downturns or financial unforeseen difficulties. Sometimes it might have something to do with their own health. It could be lots of different things. But crisis many times has been what's led people to first consider Jesus. And most people go, well, that's just the problem. See, I don't, I don't want to, I think that's a lame kind of thing. Well, I don't. Neither is the Bible. And what I've learned is a lot of times that can be the beginning point. And Jesus does not begrudge this guy at all for that. He says, I'll take you where you are. You start with crisis belief, crisis faith. I'll start with you there. You know, have you ever had that happen? Some of you, you have no interest in Jesus right now. But a storm may hit your life someday. And when it does, I wonder if you might not find yourself reconsidering Jesus. I hope it won't take a storm. But if it does, that may be the opening where you begin to believe Jesus. Now, the second thing I want you to see is that Jesus' response to this guy, which, by the way, uh, the imperfect tense where it says he begs Jesus, the imperfect tense means that he keeps doing it. He does it with incredible intensity. So picture this. He goes up to Jesus. He gets to him, and all he knows about Jesus is what he's heard about what Jesus can do for people. So he goes, Jesus, please, my son, my son, please come and heal my son. Please, please, Jesus, please come and heal him. And he's talking to him like this. Now, at that point, we would expect Jesus to say something like, talk to me a little more, I'm listening, that kind of thing. Jesus doesn't do that. In verse 48, I listed it there in that second gray box, Jesus' reply is, sounds heartless. It sounds almost like he's not even tuned into this guy. Would you read it with me in that second gray box out loud? Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. Whoa. Excuse me? I just, I just talked to you about my dying son, and you're going to like make a commentary on stuff like that? I, I don't understand. But Jesus is saying something right now that is testing this guy, that is testing where everybody's belief is. Do you and I just believe when the weather's fair? Do you and I just believe when he does all kinds of things for us? What do we believe? What is it? And Jesus says, unless you people, he's not just talking to this guy. He's talking to this whole area that supposedly welcomed him. And he says, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. Now, I used to think when I first read this that Jesus was mad, that Jesus was angry. And the more that I read it, the more I realize that he's grieving this. It makes him sad. He's literally saying, that's, that's really all the kind of belief you're at right now. That is not going to be adequate when the storms come. That's not going to be adequate when the miracles stop for a time. It's not going to help you really get to know me. You're making me a sideshow. You're making me a vending machine. What, what, do you, what, what kind of belief do you have? 
unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you'll never believe. Now, I want to make sure I say something here. Jesus is not against miraculous signs and wonders. He's about to do one. Remember, we just read the last verse. We know how the story ends. This is the second miraculous sign he does. And Jesus also pointed out that he says, even if you don't believe that I'm in the Father, at least believe the miraculous signs I've done. At least believe those things. But what he's saying is, if you stay there, if you stay at crisis belief, crisis faith, you'll never really get to know me. So is that where you're at? And you know what? We're about to read a story where there's an exception in Galilee, and it's this royal official. And, and this tests him, if you're following along. But Jesus' reply tests and invites him to seek more. In other words, he's saying, you came to me because you believe that I can do something for your son. I'm so glad you're here. But are you just interested in what I can do for you? Are you interested in knowing me, believing me, trusting me, not just for one little side part of your life, but your whole life? When I was um, younger, I, I went to seminary for a couple years. Um, I was a pastor out in western Iowa with my wife, and we had had our first child. And um, Jeremy was a young boy at that time, and so I had to be gone three and a half days a week for two school years. And I would get home and then hit the ground running in this, in this church there. And um, I remember that my goal was to always try and bring him a gift. And I found that I especially liked giving him those little boxes of Legos. So over time, as I would walk in from the garage, Jeremy had always come running up to me and hugged me, excited to see me. Over time, I noticed that his attention started to shift. When I walked into the door, guess where he first tended to look? My hand. He wanted to see what was in my hand. What did you bring this time, Dad? And uh, I just, I sometimes wanted to go, over here, over here. God used that to show me that my belief was closer to that than it was to where he wanted to take me. He said, are you only interested in what's my hand, or do you want to know my heart? Do you, are you interested in my face? Are you interested in knowing me? Are you interested in doing life with me? Or is it just for what I can... You see, when we reduce Jesus to that, that kind of belief just doesn't pass the muster, does it? It's not going to help us in the long run, is it? So Jesus tests this guy, and he presses him for more by saying this statement. So how does the guy react? Does it make him go, fine, fine, if that's the way you're going to be, I'll go find another way to get my son better. No, this guy, this guy sees something in Jesus. Look at verse 49 and 50. It says this, the royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. And the word he uses for my child here has the deepest affection. It can be translated, before my dear child dies. Come down, please. He still is putting all of his marbles on Jesus. Verse 50, Jesus replied, you may go. Your son will live. You may go. Your son will live. Not a very long sentence, but life-changing for this guy. Life-changing. If you're following along, it's a moment of truth when Jesus says, your son lives. That's the literal translation of that phrase, your son will live. It's your son lives. That all who believe in his name, by believing, they may have life in his name. 
He doesn't just mean he's physically better. Your son lives. Now, when that happened, did you notice that Jesus, Jesus doesn't answer his request the way he asked it? I mean, Jesus, that's pretty good. You got the main part right. But I believe I asked you to come and heal my son. See, I think I need to see you do it for it to happen, right? Now Jesus is trying to say to him, you need to see in order to believe, or will you believe that when I say it, it's done? It's true right now. Where is your belief? Is your belief in what you can see, or is your belief in me? If your belief is in me, then you know that when I say something, you know my character. You know who I am. You will know that it's done. It's true. It's happening. Wow, what a moment of truth. And he could have just said, you know, um, thanks for that, but I really kind of want you to come with me. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus did not cooperate that way. He wanted to help deepen and develop this guy's trust and belief and faith deeper than that. So if you're following along, he takes Jesus at his word with confident faith. Confident in the sense that now, in fact, you could even put the word calm, faith. Something happens to this guy. When Jesus speaks these words, you may go, your son will live. All of a sudden, something happens to this guy. By Jesus speaking to this guy, by him coaching him, he moves him from a crisis faith way down the road to a confident faith where now he goes, there's something about you, Jesus. If you say it's true, I believe it. But I believe it because I believe you. That's powerful. And what happens next is a, is a beautiful thing. It says the man took Jesus at his word and departed. And while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. The seventh hour in Mideastern time then was one o'clock in the afternoon. The guy checked his sundial. <laughs> you know, that's the exact same thing. No, I think he remembered exactly where the sun was that time of day. In fact, my guess is every time he saw that sun in the exact same place, he never forgot that moment with Jesus. And when he hears this, if you're following along, his servant's report leads to continuing faith in Jesus. His servant's report leads to continuing faith in Jesus. As a pastor, sometimes I get a chance to be you know, in places with people when they're going through crisis. And I've had a chance over the years to see a lot of people experience the compassion of Jesus when they were in a crisis. I've watched Jesus do things for people that they didn't deserve and they knew it. I've watched him do amazing things. And I want to be quick to say I've also seen mysterious things where Jesus didn't always do what I thought he would do. What I've noticed is there are some people that when they're in the crisis, when they're in the jam, they go, if Jesus gets me out of this, I'm going to serve him the rest of my life. If Jesus gets me out of this, believe it or not, I'm going to church. And the whole family's going, did Ed say that? I mean, it's just total shock. But they'll make all kinds of promises because they're in crisis belief, okay? But when Jesus answers their prayer, 
their belief quickly evaporates. They don't have continuing faith. They don't continue to believe in him until their next crisis. And Jesus is trying to say, that will never serve you very well. It may feel more convenient to the time, but you're missing out on what you could learn about me and know about me. Oh, man. And so that leads us to this last idea. His contagious faith leads his household to believe too. I love this verse. Verse 53, then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and all his household believed. His contagious faith leads his household to believe too. Friends, when he first met Jesus that day, when he headed out from Capernaum and went to meet Jesus, he thought that the goal in life was to get his son to live. What Jesus had in mind was so much bigger than that. Yes, I can heal your son, but what happens if I transformed your whole family? Would you be interested? What happens if I changed your life forever so that whether things were going great, miraculous, sensational, or they were humdrum, normal, mundane, that I could be with you in every moment of your life? What happens if you could believe me in every situation and by trusting me, you could see life differently than you ever seen it before? Friends, this is what Jesus was after. But I love when it says that the whole household came to believe. Picture this. He's walking home. He gets near his house, and he sees his son standing in the doorway. And they run to each other, and they hold each other. And I bet he held him for a long time. I bet he held him like he'd never held him before. And I bet the whole time he's thinking, Jesus is, Jesus is real. Jesus, who is this Jesus? He's worth my whole life. And as he goes in the house, I can just picture him getting his whole family, even the servants there, saying, I need to talk to you and tell you what's just happened. I need to tell you about Jesus. And as he does, Jesus hasn't just been healing the son. He's been preparing the hearts of all of his family. And now they hear about Jesus and they go, I believe that you are telling me I want to believe in Jesus with you, even though I didn't get to see what you saw or hear what you heard. I believe in Jesus too. And it changed their family. And I don't know if you've ever looked at this before, but in Acts 11, it tells us that Jesus saved Cornelius' whole household. It tells us in Acts 16 that Lydia and her entire household came to believe in Jesus Christ. In Acts 16, the Philippian jailer, look at this passage right here. This is an awesome passage. We're told that Paul and Silas get beaten with rods, and they're in, in a prison dungeon. And there they're singing and praying, asking God what they're supposed to do next. Notice they still believe in Jesus even when they're beaten. But while they're praying and singing, it says the prisoners were listening. And then an earthquake happens that cannot be explained easily. And the jailer called for the lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He brought them into his house and set a meal before them, and, his entire, and he and his entire household rejoiced. Why did they rejoice? Because they all 
believe in God. Acts 18 tells us that Crispus and his household came to believe. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that Stephanus and his household believed. Friends, I have a friend in California that I met over 30 years ago. His name's Gordon. And I'll never forget, he and I both had girlfriends up in the north woods of Wisconsin in 1981 who were at this camp called Honey Rock Camp for outdoor education. We had never met each other before, but we knew we wanted to get somehow up to that camp where our girlfriends were to visit them since they were going to be gone for two months. Gordon, his girlfriend, was friends with my wife-to-be, and they started talking, so they said, look, you guys can carpool it at seven or eight hours. So I'm in the car for seven or eight hours with a guy I just met who's four years older than me, and he picks me up, and Gordon begins to tell me about his story, and I tell him about mine, and I'll never forget his story. I called him yesterday and asked him to tell it to me again. He was one of six brothers. In the 1970s, some of you remember that the Vietnam War was creating all kinds of turbulence in our country. And there were riots, and there were protesters, and people were killed in the midst of it, and a lot of tragedy was going on because kids 18 and 19 years old were being brought home in body bags for a war that people didn't even know if they believed in. And so at Kent State in Ohio, one day, his two brothers were both there involved in the rally. One of his brothers was a protester. One of his brothers was holding a rifle. Some of you know that a couple students got killed that day, two to four, I can't remember the number, but some got killed. It was serious business. But along the line, one of those protesters named Al trusted Christ. It was the day of Jesus, people. It was the day when God was doing something in our country in an amazing way. And Al talked to his older brother, Keith, and he talked to him about how you and I, even though we are sinful people, that if we will trust in Christ, he can change our lives that he will give us a new life and teach us how to live life differently. And he believed him, and he put his faith in Jesus Christ. Then he came home and told his brothers. When he went to tell his older brother Bob, who had been holding that rifle, about Jesus, his brother Bob had so many inner demons, so much anger, so much hate, that he said, if you ever talk to me about Jesus again, I have a gun, I will kill you. And he was dead serious. But Keith wouldn't stop talking to his brother about Jesus couldn't stop talking to anybody about Jesus because he saw how much Jesus had changed his life and given him hope and how he could change the rest of his life. And he believed Jesus. And so he began to tell. And eventually, after this older brother had had three or four car accidents one year and survived, he was open. And he came to Christ. Their brother Ian came to Christ. Their brother Don came to Christ. My friend Gordon one day says, I walked in the kitchen and asked my brother to tell me about what the Bible says about how Jesus came for sinners because he knew he was dead in his sin. And he put his trust in Christ. He eventually led his younger brother, Scotty, to Christ. Friends, I just want to tell you, two of those brothers are gone now. But God saved that whole household of brothers, and I've had the privilege of playing wiffle ball with them, and I've had the privilege of being with them. I'll tell you, these guys were changed by Christ. They had a contagious faith. He wants us to have it too. So this phrase, here's what I want us to notice before we end today. I love this phrase in verse 50, the last part of verse 50. It says, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. What's that mean? What does it mean to take Jesus at his word? What is that? How does that change the way we believe? You see, he didn't say, and the man waited till he saw and then believed. 
He took Jesus at his word and then departed. And so let's just think about what it might mean for you and I. I put this phrase, what if Jeff took Jesus at his word? What would happen? You may want to put your own name in there. What if your name went in there and you took Jesus at his word? Here's a couple questions. What am I doing with Jesus' words? What am I doing with Jesus' words? Some of you go, what are you talking about? I don't know anything about the Bible. My friend Gordon told me yesterday that until his brother came home, even though they were raised in a background that went to church every Sunday, he had never opened a Bible, nor had any of his family members. So I do not assume that just because you grew up going to church, you know Jesus' words. It's possible to go your whole life and never, ever really know Jesus' words personally. But how do you and I get to know Jesus' words? What are we doing with them now? Can I just tell you? I commend you for being here this morning. There may be heel marks in the parking lot because you came to please somebody else, okay? But I commend you for being here. You know why? Because you're getting a chance to hear Jesus' words. The question is, what are you doing with them? Are you treasuring them? If this is the only time you hear Jesus' words all week, then I just want to challenge you to go further. What? What? You and I cannot be deeply influenced by that which we do not know. So are you letting Jesus' words be heard often in your home, often, all week long? Are you treasuring them? Somebody might say, where do I start? A few years ago, we walked through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's three chapters loaded with just Jesus' words. You may want to look at those, or you may want to continue to read John's Gospel. But you know why we're going through John's Gospel? Because we believe that Jesus' words are powerful. Colossians 3.16 says, Therefore, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's a hospitality word. Let it be more and more at home in your life. Let Jesus' words be more and more at home in your heart. Even if you come from a background like my friend Gordon that had never seen the Bible before, once he began to hear Jesus' words, it produced faith in my friend. And it can do the same for you. Romans 10.17, look at what it says. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of who, friends? Christ, his words, what are you doing with them? Are you familiar with them at all? Is it something that you'd be interested in doing? Jesus once said that the four soils represented four different kinds of hearts that a farmer would sow seed like they did in those days in the Middle East, and it would land in different places. Some people were like people on a path, some people like shallow soil, some people on thorny soil, some people on good soil. Look at this, what it says in Mark 4. Jesus makes this observation. It says, the farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes the word away that was sown in them. Why? Because they're hard. They're too busy. They don't care. Then it says, others like seeds sown on rocky places hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes, the kind of believing they have because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop 30, 60, even 100 times what was sown. What are you doing with Jesus' words? Are you, is your heart good soil? Is your heart open to what Jesus has, or do you... There's a verse in Nehemiah 9, 26. It says, they threw my words behind their back. They don't have any interest in my words. What are you doing with Jesus' words? That's a question I've had to ask myself. The second one is, what effect are Jesus' words having on me? What effect 
are Jesus' words having on me. Can I point to anything? Can you point to anything that is now different in your life because you've met Jesus and heard his words? Have you rearranged anything in your life? That's what this guy did. He took Jesus at his word, it says, and then what? Departed. Can I just give you another word for departed? He moved. Some of us want to see God move in our lives. You know sometimes what it's going to require? Moving. Obeying. Acting. Going. It was as the guy departed and walked home that he saw what God could do and he saw life differently. And you and I can too. This week I just wrote down some things that are different because of Jesus' words in my own life and then I also noticed some things that still aren't different because of Jesus' words, and I saw where I need to grow and where he wants to deepen and develop my faith as a coach. This last question is this. Am I letting Jesus coach me to deeper belief in him? Am I letting Jesus coach me to deeper belief in him? As you close your Bibles, can I just talk with you for a second about that? Are you like this guy? That you're at a certain place with Jesus and you know, and you can just tell by being with Jesus that he wants to, to, to bring you to a deeper place of trusting him. So it's not just about seeing miraculous signs and wonders, even though he wants to do those things. I knew a man that once said that he would go up to people and say, what do you need Jesus to do in your life? How can I pray for you? because I want you to meet Jesus. And then he would pray for his friends. And more times than he could count, Jesus would work in his friends' lives. And their antenna would be up and they would realize that Jesus came to change their life, wanted to work in their life. But now they had the decision to make, well, I let him coach me to the place where he deepens and develops that belief in him. He wants to do that in your life and mine. So I want to close by just bowing our heads and giving you a moment to talk with Jesus. Just tell him where you're at. Tell him whatever situation may be testing you right now or you feel like he's coaching you. And offer your heart to him and say, Jesus, I sometimes want to quit, but deepen my belief in you. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord. Hear our prayer. Now, Lord, I don't know where different people are today, but I believe that by just the way you work in people's lives, that you may be wanting someone in this room to believe in you so their whole household could be impacted. I pray that you might lead someone to believe in you today that's stuck or that doesn't have continuing belief and faith in you. I pray that you'll bring some people that have never put saving belief and faith in you. They'll do that today, like those that were baptized did earlier. But help us, O oh Lord, to be a church that grows in our belief in you for your sake and for ours and for our families. And everyone agreed and said amen. Now the prayer team will be down front. If anyone has made a response of belief today or you have questions, we'll be down front. God bless you.